0: A
1: Podcast One Production. Oh, that's a curly one.
0: Big questions. That three letter word, S E X, sex. It amuses, bemuses, confounds, obsesses so many of us. What, what am I like? Am I any good? Seriously, did you enjoy that? How do I rate to other people? Where do I sit on the scale? Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you take your eyes away from the human kingdom and look at all animals, ha, 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 do they get up to some fun stuff. So on this episode of The Big Questions, I'm asking, how sexy do some animals get? And my guest, a world expert on animal sex and biology, Dr. Karen Bondar. It's always great to speak with my next guest. I'm not sure if you remember, however, Karen, I should disclose, the last time we spoke with each other, I had just walked down a stairway carrying a giant barnacle's penis. What better way than to say, hey, how are you going?
1: I'm well, thanks, Adam. It's great to be here. Now,
0: for people who might have been a little bit surprised by that introduction, I remember (laughs) walking down a flight of stairs with this sort of gigantic, long, stuffed stocking on my head what was I doing and why
1: gosh those were some great memories i uh, i have this nifty little online series called wild sex which that barnacle penis which is 15 meters long uh, was created for that series and um, what it was meant to represent is just how big a human male's penis might be if it were the same body size to penis ratio as that of the meager beach barnacle you know this is an animal we don't often give a lot of respect to but when it comes to penis to body size ratio the barnacle is the big winner so that's uh, you know like i i remember i had this beautiful visual of a bunch of people bringing it down an escalator. <laughs> it was so great. That
0: barnacle will have my eternal respect. Don't you worry about that. So it's one of the things you say in the introduction to wild sex is that as, as excited as we humans are by sex and the crucial role it plays in our societies around the world across time, in some ways, human sex is quite bland and overrated on a full animal kingdom scale.
1: Mm-hmm. Not just in some ways, uh, pretty much in every way you can think of. We are, are pretty boring when it comes to the kind of sex we have, um, the partners that we share our sex with, and and the fact that we, you know, we do it in, generally speaking, a, a very comfortable position. We lay down on a bed and then the deed happens and then we go about our day. Oh boy, it is so not the case in the rest of the animal kingdom.
0: And we'll walk through some fascinating examples from your book, Wild Sex, soon to shine a light into some of the you know, fascinating practices out there. But the point that you make early on in, in, in the book is that while human sex is quite bland in a lot of ways, it still is what informs us as to what should be acceptable for sex. And so we have this irony that the people who are sort of the most bland teetotalers of the sex world, we're, we're the ones who then, might, if we try and impose our values on what we know other animal species do that's a very it's it's a it's a it's a bizarre position to come from in some ways isn't it
1: it's a very bizarre one, and I one of the things I love to say is, if we're going to call natural everything that occurs in nature, then we're going to have to write some story, rewrite some storybooks.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, I mean, it's yeah, we are. You know, and there are a lot of sex positive, really wacky folks out there doing some very interesting things, and I mean, that is much more akin to what we see in the rest of the animal kingdom.
0: You structure your book in three sections: the meat, the sex. And the aftermath, explain that roadmap to us and then we'll look at some examples from each of them.
1: Yeah, so I like to think of the process of sex as, uh, you know, much bigger than the act of copulation. I mean, if you think about it, there's so much that we need to do, first of all, in, able, uh, to, in order to be able to find a mate in the first place. Um, humans have it remarkably easy in this context. Um, then once you've found someone, you've got to successfully court them and then you've got to successfully copulate with them. And then you've got to successfully rear the offspring that are resulting from that copulation. And and this whole process is what I call the process of sex.
0: One of the very first examples you give in the book shows how easy we humans do have it. Normally, if you and another human have decided that you want to go down that path, there's not many other living beings standing in your way. You might have an overzealous mother-in-law or a a jealous (laughs) ex-boyfriend. But the cabbage white butterfly has another species deliberately trying to circumvent its attempts to get us on. Tell us about the butterfly.
1: That's right. So this is an example of parasitism. And parasitism is alive and well in a lot of aspects of animal life, but in their sex lives is just so interesting and bizarre. So what happens in the first place is that the male, uh, the males of these butterflies are already trying to manipulate the behaviors of their female partners. Along with their ejaculate, they're giving the females a dose of chemicals that have anti-aphrodisiac properties. And these anti- aphrodisiacs do, just as their name suggests, and and, and they prevent the female from remating. So this is good for the male, because she's not going to go and seek any other sperm from anybody else. But the bad thing about this chemical is that a certain parasitic species, a parasitic wasp, in fact, has evolved to detect this specific chemical. So what happens is if a female gets fertilized, the wasps are then signaled that she is about to go and oviposit, or about to go and deposit her eggs somewhere. So the, the, the wasps actually attach their small larvae to the female, unbeknownst to the female. These are all microscopic. And the female goes off to lay her eggs in these lovely little egg cases. Little does she know, she's also depositing some of the parasite into each and every egg case. Mm. Uh, and the parasite goes ahead and just eats all of her eggs. And so that means all of her eggs will die uh, and be food for the parasite who will thrive in this
0: environment. This isn't the only example in the animal kingdom of when still developing young become food for other developing young. What about the sand tiger shark? I'd I'd heard something about this, but when I read it in Wild Sex, it, it, it still shocked me.
1: It's so shocking. It's such a fascinating example. So in this case, a female has sex with many, many males, and we think that this gives her an edge as far as the genetic diversity of her offspring. So she has a paired uterus system. She has two uteruses or uteri, and uh, there are several eggs within each uterus. Now, the each egg in the uterus or the paired uteruses gets fertilized by a different sperm. So each egg, uh, if you Has a different dad, but they tend to develop at different rates. So the egg that hatches first will actually cannibalize all of the other eggs in there. Uh, Even if there is a, you know, if even if they are um, close in development, there will almost be like a duking it out to the death inside of mom's uterus so that the strongest and the best little embryos are the ones that are actually hatched. So only one will will win the, the cage match inside of mom's uterus and uh, emerge as the offspring. So, you know, scientists aren't sure if this is a way for her to select or for the sperm selection to occur uh, at mum's disposal or or perhaps for some other reason that they haven't been able to elucidate yet. It's amazing to
0: think of, isn't it? So you've got the twin uterus. She gives birth to two young, but those two young could well be from different fathers. It's just th- those ones have won the the cannibalistic battle that's taken place inside the uterus.
1: That's correct. Yes,
0: wonderful stuff. Tell us about <laughs> my friend the snail, because I'm a guy. I'm a guy who likes to. <laughs> I like to try and help out. There's a, there's a particular species of snail where the guy tries to help out, but um, you know, not always to his advantage.
1: And this is why I love biology. There's so many weird examples that we just can't explain. Generally speaking, uh, in snails, males do not do much as far as donate sperm. But there's one particular intertidal species where scientists have noticed that uh, males actually end up carrying the fertilized eggs uh, and embryos on their back. And and they do this to their own detriment. It's actually very energetically costly for them to to be doing that. Um, But the kicker here is that when scientists actually looked at who the eggs belong to, who these embryos belong to, it turns out that less than 25% of the eggs that this guy is carrying around actually genetically belong to him. So, this is really a conundrum. Not only is he doing a ton of extra work uh, in order to see these embryos raised safely, he's doing it for um, other males to increase their uh, genetic potential in future generations. We can perhaps assume that all males are doing this to each other. So, maybe in the long run, it all balances out. But as of yet, that hasn't been determined. So, this is quite a conundrum. Phew, hoo,
0: hoo. Hot enough for you yet? Need a bit of a lie down? Trust me, when we get back from the break, we haven't touched the surface yet of steamy animal sex. With my special guest, Dr Karen Bondar, you're listening to The Big Questions. Adam Spencer talking with Dr. Karen Bondar about her book Wild Sex. She's a biologist and an expert in animal mating and reproductive patterns. As we move into section two of the book, we talk about the sex. And if you think it was interesting the way that animals meet, oh, oh, oh the way some of them get them on, stabbing each other in the forehead, what are these sea <laughs> slugs up to, Karen?
1: This is, and it is, I love this example because this is work that's come right out of Australia. So it's happening right under your noses over there. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a tropical species of nudibranch, so sea slug, that is hermaphroditic. So that means they have both male and female genitalia. Now, for a hermaphroditic, animal, it always makes sense to try to play the male as much as possible Mm -hmm. because it's a lot more expensive to be a female. Eggs are expensive and then you have to rear them and and birth them and whatever. Um, And so males will actually try and stab one another with their razor sharp penises first. That's quite common. But what's uncommon about this species is that scientists noticed that they were always to an insane degree of precision and accuracy, stabbing their partners directly into their foreheads. Um, So, forget genital openings here. We have, you know, stabbing into the forehead with a penis instead. And uh, what they're doing is they're depositing neurochemicals directly onto the cerebral ganglion of the receiving partner to make that receiving partner act more like a female. So, this is essentially neurochemical warfare here. Extremely exciting.
0: Oh, okay. So, the the the, the one that's doing the stabbing is trying to convince this other hermaphrodite that could be male or female. You want to be the female in this exchange. Well, once they've convinced them of that, they then go around and, and, and do the sex act as the male.
1: Well, no, that is the sex act. So so in addition, so while he's stabbing oh. the partner, he's giving sperm as well. But another thing that's coming along with the sperm are these neurochemicals. So, you know, forget vagina. There ain't no vagina.
0: Can any examples of hermaphrodite species impregnate themselves or do you still – you don't even need the two animals?
1: So, yes, in some cases, um, hermaphrodites are capable of having sex with themselves and essentially creating clones of themselves. Um, and this does happen. And in some species, it, it, ha- some species it happens to a sort of a baseline um, so that they can ensure that they will have some reproductive success. But, of course, in the interest of uh, maintaining genetic diversity uh, of offspring, most hermaphroditic species seek other partners.
0: Hmm. I, I strongly recommend you read Uh, Karen's book, Wild Sex, from page one all the way through to the end. I do know if you're the sort of person who runs through the chapter titles, and the chapter titles are brilliant in this book, Karen, may I say. uh, Thank you. you. You may well be dragged to, everyone who's ever heard about weird animal sex has heard about it, cannibalistic females and the males that love them. We have all heard stories of these animals where the female will bite off the head of the male during the act of lovemaking, Karen, tell me it's not true.
1: <laughs> oh, it's so true. Ah. <laughs> and um, the you know the interesting thing is because on the surface it looks quite um, totally totally nonsensical. Why on earth would a male mm. allow himself to get killed? But the example that you just talked about, which is which is generally seen as the praying mantis example, where a male is behind a female, they're they're having sex. She she reaches back, rips his head off, starts eating his head. Well, his decapitated body still is having sex with her. Mm. Now, that's that's kind of the key point there, which, which means that his sperm is still doing its best to reach her eggs. And if she's busy eating his head and then uh, subsequently busy eating his body, what she's not doing is searching for another male partner and potentially competing sperm. So, really, in some cases, and in that praying mantis case, um, it is in the male male's best interest to have sex with a female that lasts as long as possible. In a lot of these species, males aren't going to get many cracks at it anyway. (laughs) So if he takes off before she's had a chance, uh, before his sperm has had a chance to actually reach her ovaries, sure he survives, but chances are his sperm will not be the one to fertilize her eggs. And frankly, that's the whole point.
0: And the old joke is, of course, how is any young boy meant to grow up knowing about this? It's not like his dad could sit him down and tell him. (laughs) <laughs> but but it, 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 often in these species, it's not it's not the case, is it, that every single time copulation takes place, the female always kills every single male. It happens sometimes, but not as much as we might think.
1: Yeah, so there's some species, and I mean, there's a whole gamut, so we see a lot of different techniques and a lot of different strategies that make sense in the context of certain species, but one that comes to mind is uh, another orb-weaving spider species, Mm -hmm. and in this case, the first sexual partner that a female has, she almost always eats him, essentially her first sexual partner really amounts to nothing more than a light snack, Um, then she's full, okay, so other males are around, they're paying attention, Oh, hold on. She just ate Frank. She's full. I'm going to go have sex with her now. <laughs> and that's true. So a lot of these spiders are actually actively actively observing um, whether a female has already eaten someone. Now, in other species, the exact opposite is true. Oh, she already had sex with Frank. I'm not going to do that. I'd prefer a virgin. I mean, there's just so much diversity out there.
0: I love the idea of those spiders making a bit of pre-chat beforehand and the guy vaguely <laughs> – Raising the subject with a girl. So, would this uh, have you ever? this Is this your first time? And she says, "Yes, it is." Well, I'm. I'm. Uh, oh no, I've.
1: Uh, oh, there's somewhere I gotta be. <laughs> I gotta run.
0: I'll go and get my. I'll go and get Frank. <laughs> okay. Once we've explored the meeting, and once we've explored the sex, wild sex also focuses on the aftermath, because again, in the same way that we humans have certain understandings of what is involved in if you do successfully impregnate a partner or if you are if you do fall pregnant yourself. We have certain assumptions that you'll probably stick around and you'll be the parents and you might have another couple of kids and you look after them for the next twenty odd years or you know, fifty years with some of these Gen Y hipsters going around. They're not universal truths in the animal kingdom, are they, Karen?
1: Absolutely not. And I do like to poke a bit of fun at our species in this context as you've just kind of done this sort of, these these people that stay home with their parents till 40 years old or whatever. I mean, for most mammals and certainly primates, uh, which we are one, um, at sexual maturity, it's bye-bye. See ya later. Get out of my nest. You're competing with me now. Um, so, you know, humans really go above and beyond parental care necessity if you look at it in the context of the rest of our primate cousins. Well,
0: one of the One of the assumptions in in a human um, uh, interaction is, you know, it it does happen sometimes and it's horrible that it is. Child abuse should not happen. Humans are meant to care for and not damage or prey on their children. But that's, that's not a universal in the animal kingdom, is it?
1: No. And there's a lot of interesting cases of infanticide and and violence against uh, young juveniles. But one example that I find to be absolutely fascinating is with a group of birds in the Galapagos. And these are called Nazca boobies. And scientists have noticed this behavior in all populations of Nazca boobies, uh, but in no other birds. And that is um, mom and dad quite often both have to be away from the nest because uh, times could be tough. They have to be off uh, looking for food. Food. and young hatchlings are visited by other adults and these are called non-parental adult visitors or navs and these navs can can visit it's kind of creepy the navs can just visit the young hatchlings give them some pebbles be nice to them but more often than not these visitors actually peck at the little hatchlings um, causing them to become wounded they don't kill them directly but because they then have bleeding wounds other their blood parasites and things get in and the, and the young actually eventually die. There's another couple of cases where it's been observed that these visitors actually force copulations on young hatchlings. Now, scientists aren't sure why any of this happens, but it does consistently happen with this one kind of bird. And one of the most interesting facets of it is they've looked at some of the neurological development of these chicks that have undergone this abuse. And what they found are certain changes in the brain development of these chicks that cause them to become abusers themselves when they're adults and they call this the cycle of violence and this is absolutely fascinating especially sort of in the context of our species where we aim to um, understand how abusers act and how it may be related to abuse that they themselves suffered as young children.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Cara Bondar, the author of Wild Sex. It's a survey of sex and relationships throughout the animal kingdom. Amazing individuals examples and, and fascinating to explore the, the unifying themes or the completely different attitudes that different species seem to display to aspects of coupling. You talk in the book about senescence. Karen, can you explain the con- mm-hmm. concept of senescence and give us an example from the animal kingdom?
1: So we all get older. You know, it's it's the world's worst kept secret, isn't it? You know, the wrinkles start happening, the gray hairs appear. Oh, you're and me, happens- sister. <laughs> happens with animals too. But interestingly, um, for most animals, reproductive senescence or sexual senescence happens at about the same rate as as body senescence. And so usually when animals stop reproducing, they die. Um, That's not the case for our species. But in some species, um, the senescence or the speeding up of the aging of the body is actually a direct result of the amount of sex they've had as young young adults. Mm. Uh, And what I mean by that, and it's a a good example is the a species of, of deer um, that you know males during the rutting season will have large harems of females and how do you get a large harem of females to follow you? You have great big gorgeous antlers. So these antlers to grow them they're actually among the fastest growing tissues in the mammalian world. It takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of effort and these antlers come off every single season so they've got to regrow them every year. So what happens in males that have had these big harems of females is that they've also had to um, fight with other males and they've had to uh, grow these antlers. They don't directly contribute in any way parentally, but these effects of the antlers and of the fighting on their body means that they're going to age at a much faster rate. So if you've been very reproductively successful as a young adult male deer, you're going to die quite a bit sooner than if you hadn't been.
0: So while the the young male deer's colleagues are jealous at the impressive head of antler, that uh, Gary is sporting <laughs> at the moment. They, they know in the long term it's going to catch up with him?
1: They know that Gary is going to be a goner. They know that.
0: <laughs> when, 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 you've been doing this work for a long time now, Karen, and, and the range of animals that you've surveyed, land-based, water-based, smallest insects, sort of giant whales, do you have favourites or does every one of them exist equally, you know, justifiably and, and, and fairly in your mind? Is it the diversity <laughs> itself that's the beauty?
1: I think you've nailed it right there, Adam. I think it is the diversity for me. That's the beauty because, you know, we have the examples that are just almost too strange to be true. And we have examples that are kind of, oh, a little bit more innocuous, not so shocking, so interesting. But there could be other facets to that boring sex that we don't know about. Maybe it took them forever to find a mate or to win a mate. Um, But the bottom line and the unifying factor in all of these things is that every animal is just trying to get its genetic blueprints into the next generation. And so I think that, you know, when we when we frame it in this bottom line that every single animal has, it just sort of becomes like, ah, just just you're in awe of the crazy way, you know, amount of ways that animals are managing to accomplish this. It's it's astounding.
0: And and one other point you do make in the summary at the end of your book is that in, in large swathes of the animal kingdom, it's okay to be gay.
1: Oh, absolutely. You'd, I have yet to come across a species um, that doesn't exhibit some form of, of homosexual sex. Absolutely. I haven't found one yet.
0: And I, I don't doubt you're going to keep on looking and looking and looking. You may well not <laughs> find one, but you'll be looking to the grave in this sort of Very stuff. Well. <laughs> we love talking about it with you, Karen. It is fascinating stuff. The book is Wild Sex. When do you next plan to be back in Australia carrying around big barnacle penises or similar?
1: I sure hope I can get there soon. I love Australian National Science Week. You guys have all the fun.
0: You make sure you bring (laughs) your giant barnacle penis with you when you do, Karen Bond. lovely as always to speak with you on the big questions. Well, There you go. Don't know about you, but I need a shower and a good lie down. Amazing to have a look at the various sexual and biological practices across the diversity of the animal kingdom. Don't know about you, but it wasn't lost on me at a time in Australia when we're asking big questions about what's acceptable and not in the bedroom and in marriage. Don't some of those sea slugs leave us to shame. Anyway, I'm Adam Spencer. You've been listening to a very saucy episode of The Big Questions. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios. Executive producer Jamie Show, series producer Caroline Pegram, and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more big questions soon. Big questions.